You're listening to Pod Bless Canada, the Macdonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Ayman Lau, and I'm a communications officer at the Institute, and I'm joined today by Professor Rick Aures at the Faculty of Medicine at Memorial University of Newfoundland. And today we're discussing the MLI's newest initiative, which is the COVID Misery Index. So welcome to the podcast, Rick. Thanks, Ayman. Thanks very much for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, Rick? Yeah, well, I'm a professor of health statistics and economics at Memorial University of Newfoundland. Although, interestingly, and, and, and not entirely unrelated to the work here, I, work that we're talking about, I'm actually in New Zealand at the moment, which is you know kind of one of the our comparator countries and the misery index that we've conducted. And we've actually seen quite different responses here. So I've, I've actually been kind of fortunate in the sense that I've been able to see COVID-19 playing out in two different parts of the world and, and very different responses to it. So this has kind of some extent uh, impacted the, the way in which I've looked at the misery index and, and kind of how I've interpreted some of what we've seen and uh, and what we've observed through this analysis. So yeah, so this is something that has been obviously as, as somebody who's interested in, in health statistics and economics and is uh, you know very much in my in my area. And I've done uh, quite a bit of work over the years and in the past with McDonald Laurier uh, Institute work particularly on things like the Justice Report Card and things like that. So this is very much in the neighborhood of the kind of work that I'm you know very interested in doing and, and these kind of comparisons that I think are really important. What we've seen with COVID nineteen sort of sort of a massive shock to the whole world and very different responses to it. And, and you know and kind of interestingly uh, there's not really a playbook in terms of how do we respond to a global pandemic. There's, you know, there certainly is, uh, you know, the World Health Organization and, and, and other organizations, you know, Public Health Agency of Canada, organizations like that have, have certainly given some guidance. But this is something that we haven't had a lot of practice with, certainly in modern times. And so, again, it's, it's been really interesting to see how different responses uh, have played out and the impact that uh, and this disease has had on the world, not just the disease itself, but but how we've responded to it and the impact that that's had. Awesome. Yeah. And it also sounds like we don't have good comparison currently right now to see how countries have responded and how it compares to other countries. So then the question would be, what are the categories within the COVID misery index? One of the things that we um, thought, well, as we thought a little bit about the disease, and again, part of this exercise is driven by what data is captured. So again, there, there might be other measures that we'd like to capture, but we don't have available. So we got to compromise between the data that organizations are capturing and making freely available to people like us. So I think that the first thing we started off was thinking about what was the, the disease itself? What impact has, you know, has the disease itself had? So just even looking at the incidence rates of the diseases, the, you know, the, the severity in terms of measured in terms of hospitalizations, and then, you know, and obviously the, uh, of course, the most severe of, of measures that, you know, the mortality rate, the number of people who've died from COVID-19. So that was the sort of first category was actually looking at the disease itself. And then we said, well, this is something that certainly we can control it and manage it. This is something that has sort of a life of its own. What governments can control is how we respond to it. So what sort of policy steps do we take to sort of mitigate the disease? And there we looked at a few things. First off, we looked at testing and the extent to which governments had you know, implemented widespread testing. We looked at vaccination rates, which I think from the get-go, we pretty much saw as the sort of the way out of COVID-19. Although certainly there was some, lots of debate early on about how long it would take us to get a vaccine. And quite amazingly, we've kind of beaten most expectations how quickly we would uh, have a usable vaccine available. And then also, and, and again, I think quite critically, the extent to which public health measures were enacted. And of course, these public health measures, some relatively simple things like wearing a mask to more dramatic things, you know, not being able to leave your house or being very restricted in our movements, closure of borders, not allowing for people to travel. Again, these are things that are important tools that can be used to combat 
the vaccine, they certainly do bring misery upon people. And finally, and, and I think an area which is of interest to me as an economist, is the economic response to it. And of course, governments can't insist that everybody stay home and businesses shutter and not offer some form of support. And uh, and certainly governments around the world have done this. It's certainly at varying different levels of support. And it's certainly an area where we see that Canada did open up the floodgates to getting money out the door, which again is something that, uh, you know, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about this as, as we go on, but certainly a debt that we're going to be paying, not just in Canada, but around the world for COVID-19 for, for years to come. And, and certainly something that is going to have an impact on our ability to say invest in infrastructure or to grapple with the next economic crisis that will inevitably come along. And if countries are, are already borrowing at, you know, at excessive levels or have debt levels that are excessively high, there's one more policy tool that's, that's taken off the table for governments to, to grapple with these things. So there certainly is a future price to pay for grappling with COVID-19 right now. So then in your COVID misery index, which countries have done the best in their response to the pandemic? Two or three countries particularly stand out. Certainly Norway, in terms of their response to the pandemic, has been pretty impressive. In looking at Norway, sort of, you know, next to their neighbours, just to the east, Sweden, and, and then to, uh, slightly to the south, the Netherlands, uh, again, two countries that haven't fared nearly as well, but also across the North Sea to the UK, again, they've done far better than those countries. Here in New Zealand, you know, we've done incredibly well with regards to managing COVID-19. Australia's done very well, and Japan has done very well. So again, I think the four countries that, are, that really kind of stand out, and if you look at our overall data that, you know, countries that have done particularly well, those are the ones that really do uh, do jump off the page at us. So what did these countries do that managed to do very well in their pandemic response? In New Zealand, Australia, the, certainly the response was to lockdown and, 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 and very stringent lockdowns and, and act very quickly. And I think one of the things we certainly see is that there's a very quick ratcheting up of responses as soon as there's the first hint of there being any danger. So here, here in New Zealand and Australia, we use what was called an elimination strategy. So essentially, the plan became to eradicate the disease and, and, and ensure that it doesn't get into the, in the wider community. So essentially, the capacity has remained so that, that if the disease does happen to leak out into the community, it is very quickly contained through a pretty massive surge capacity. So I think that's one of the things that we've been able to do here is, is be able to eliminate the disease and then react to, to new events that occur. I think throughout most of the rest of the world that that hasn't really happened. There's there kind of became a tolerable level of COVID-19. And, and I think we still see this in the, in the response to COVID-19 that we see that as caseloads are falling, you know, governments are, are starting to reduce restrictions. And of course, the disease is reasonably predictable in, the, in, in that regard. If we do relax some of the conditions around it, the disease will bounce back, particularly some of these new variants are more contagious. And if people res- go back to resuming normal activity. So I, I think that, you know, the, the responses that have been effective are the ones that have really focused on complete elimination rather than sort of this kind of tolerable level or a level that's low enough that we can start reopening because, again, as soon as people start re-engaging in normal activities, the disease comes back. And, and the epidemiologists have been pretty clear that that's what we, that, that was what was going to happen. So, yeah, I think that, 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 that if I look at it, you know, I think that's the big difference. For the COVID misery index, you also looked at economic impacts as well. And have countries fared? how have these countries fared in terms of that? It's a little bit of a sort of a chicken and the egg story. I think because the disease was reasonably well managed in, in some countries, economies have been able to get back to something like normal activity. There's still restrictions and there's still certainly borders remain closed and, and those kinds of things. But, uh, you know, but by and large, countries have been able to get back to normal activity. People have been able to get back to work. This has basically taken quite a bit of the pressure off of, you know, governments to provide 
ongoing wage subsidies and, and extending loans to businesses and things like that, because these businesses have been basically been able to get back to maybe not complete capacity, but something fairly close to it, which is basically allowed these economies to keep functioning. It was kind of interesting because at the outset of the, of the pandemic, we were sort of faced with what looked to be a choice. Are we going to sort of save the economy or are we going to save the, the health of people? And that really was a sort of false dichotomy. I mean, really what we ended up seeing was that it was actually, it was the same thing. The countries that have, have managed the disease the best have actually, you know, had the best economic outcomes as well. So I think that was a, a little bit of a, a false dichotomy that was perpetuated even by people like me who really, you know, kind of use this as an example to say, you know, these are the sort of difficult choices that we have to make. In fact, you know, what became clear pretty early on in, in the pandemic was countries that were going to get a handle on this disease were the ones that were going to recover the most quickly economically. So now there is quite a bit of debate around lockdowns as a measure to contain COVID. Which countries did you think applied them correctly and what made them effective? Well, I think there's a few things that, that come to mind. I mean, if we look at Japan did very well, uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand, and New Zealand did very well. And, and again, I think a couple of things. I mean, number one, the lockdowns were strict. Japan is a really interesting example, I think. And of course, and Taiwan was also, was not included in our analysis, but certainly has been lauded as one of the leading countries in terms of success in managing the pandemic. So it's not just a small, isolated economy. These, these are places that are quite densely populated. And, you know, one of the things that we certainly see is that the citizens of countries kind of responded well to the request. People were told to stay at home. They did. There wasn't sort of a, a flouting of the rules. And an interesting quote, one that sort of resonates with me was our prime minister here in New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, was asked, you know, what about people trying to find exceptions to the restrictions on our behaviors? And, and she said, if you're looking for a loophole, you're missing the point. And I think that's quite right. So I think the countries that responded and, and responded collectively, this is something that just had to be done and weren't really resisting the restrictions that were, you know, being put on them in terms of wearing masks or limiting their movements and things like that were the places that were most successful in terms of managing the pandemic. One of the things that certainly, again, following the news around the world is, as I do pretty closely, certainly, you know, observing in the US, the UK, maybe to a slightly lesser extent, Canada, but still is very much there that, you know, activities were limited. And there were still an awful lot of things that people were able to do in, in those countries that, for instance, we weren't able to do here. So again, there really wasn't really a debate about what could open or what couldn't open. It was very clear, grocery stores, pharmacies, petrol or gas stations. And here in New Zealand, that was what could be opened. And there wasn't anything else available. Whereas in Canada, it was, well, you know, are we going to allow takeout restaurants? What extent are we going to allow people to do pickups and curbside things at other shops? And again, not to say that these things aren't necessarily okay, but the more options that you create for activity, the more loopholes you potentially create, the more interactions that we bring people into contact with one another, which again, allows the disease to spread. On that note, on the flip side, what countries are doing the worst? Certainly Spain stands out as being particularly hard hit on all fronts. The disease ravaged the country. They had some of the very highest rates of, of incidence of the disease, very high death rates. Again, the overwhelming of their health system actually resulted in a lot of what we call excess mortality. So people were dying at higher rates of all kinds of things other than COVID-19, probably because they weren't able to get access to health services that they would normally be able to get access to, recognizing that Spain was one of the early countries that was hit hard by this. And certainly, you know, other countries were able to learn the severity of this disease from what was happening in countries like Spain and Italy. By seeing that these countries were being, strictly Spain being so hard hit, the response was a little bit slow because there wasn't a playbook. Of course, the economic fallout has been massive. And of course, it's not surprising that the countries that were particularly hard hit 
with the disease were also the ones that were also most hard hit economically. That in order to protect their populations, again, the restrictions had to be more severe in terms of allowing people to work and other forms of movement to allow the economy to function. As those things were diminished, this really did require more support from government. And so Spain is hit particularly hard. Again, the United Kingdom, following the news in the UK fairly closely, the response in the UK was pretty ham-handed in a lot of responses, increasing and then decreasing levels of restrictions. Will we lock down? Will we not lock down? Some real absurdities in some cases where they were talking about closing schools, but keeping pubs open, these kinds of things that you know didn't really make much sense. And I think really it's, it took the UK government 10 or 11 months to actually get its act together. And and, and actually now they're, they're amongst the world leaders in, in vaccination. So that's probably the only thing that kept them from doing even worse. Again, France, pretty rough performance there. And Canada falls into that group of countries where the, the, the level of misery uh, has been pretty high. Didn't uh, do nearly as well as Japan, Norway, Australia, New Zealand, some of the other countries like that. It's been a, a reasonably rough ride for Canada as well. From your index as well, you found that Canada has performed incredibly poorly on the economy, among the worst in the world that we measured. So what do you think caused such a meltdown? To be honest, I'm still trying to get to the bottom of that one. A couple things that jump out. I mean, number one, that there was a fairly massive increase in unemployment that occurred. And uh, I think because of the, the levels of restrictions that have been applied, the economy has struggled to recover. We haven't had much of a the domestic recovery from the initial lockdowns has been pretty slow. The biggest thing that jumps out for me when I look at the Canadian statistics is the level of public debt that we've taken on. And obviously, a sense that governments needed to do something to support businesses and, and workers who were, you know, who were facing hardship. But at what point did it just become an exercise of getting money into people's hands rather than, you know, perhaps being a little bit more strategic with how that money was being spent? And, and certainly the economic response does seem a little bit maybe stronger in terms of you know, the amount of money spent compared to the, you know, the, the severity of the disease. And I recognize that initially, that, you know, there was probably a need to get money into, into people's hands pretty quickly just to make sure that the people wouldn't starve to death and, and otherwise survive. But I think as, as time evolved, I think that, you know, probably government has been a little bit slow in, in updating its actions and, and, and being maybe a little bit more strategic strategic and careful with its expenditure. And I noticed as well recently, there have been some stats that came out. They've noted that Canada has still a very hot housing market, which has been helping along with the economy. But there are notable areas in which Canada's economy has just dipped. And I'm curious what you think the long-term economic impacts will be. It's something I, I think is, is going to take a long time to recover from. And we see 2021 is, is kind of a year of things hopefully gradually getting better as vaccinations roll out and, and as return to normal life. I also think that, you know, the, the economic fallout is going to be pretty massive. There's going to be uh, economic shocks in the future. Hopefully we don't have another, you know, public health induced economic shock. But every 10 years or so, there is a recession that comes along. And I do think that our ability to grapple with that next recession has been limited. I do think that Canada, which isn't different than many other countries, has a bit of an infrastructure deficit. Probably do need to spend more to upgrade our infrastructure, and, and whether that's our healthcare infrastructure, whether it's our telecommunications infrastructure, our transportation infrastructure, all these things are certainly in need of spending, and, and that's money that's not going to be available now to invest in those kinds of things. You know, the world's a competitive place, and businesses that are looking to invest, entrepreneurs that are looking to start businesses, they're going to want to locate in the countries with strong, solid infrastructure structure basis. And again, I worry a little bit that Canada is not going to have the resources to invest in that compared to other countries around the world that haven't spent quite so heavily on the pandemic as compared to Canada. With that depressing thought, is there any bright spots of optimism for Canada? Are there any areas in which Canada performed well? I think that we did do reasonably well in terms of our testing regime. I do think that the, the public health experts have done a great job 
on this. If we actually look at the first priority in managing a pandemic is managing the pandemic. And Canada has done pretty well in that regard. And I don't think we should lose sight of that. The public health people have done a good job. Their advice, I think, has generally been really good. I do think sometimes it's been a case of the politicians not listening to the experts. And, and I do think, again, around the world, listening to the advice of experts has been a hallmark of success here. And I do think the public health people in Canada, many of whom are colleagues of mine, think have done a terrific job here. And, and again, I think the impact of the disease could have been far worse. But it, again, it has extracted a, a pretty heavy toll. And as I said, you know, one area where I do think that we haven't done nearly as well on has been the vaccines. And, and, and I do think this is really a supply chain issue and, and perhaps Canadian government having faith in other countries supplying us vaccines that haven't eventuated yet. We'll get there in the end. But again, if you look at how our vaccination program is rolled out in Canada, it's, it's been slower than a lot of other countries in the world. Some countries did hold back a little bit in terms of their vaccination policies here in New Zealand uh, and in Australia, both countries that have been a little bit slower to vaccinate. Again, there was a sense of let's wait and see as more data emerges to ensure the safety and efficacy of, of these new vaccines. We certainly have the benefit of seeing what's worked elsewhere and, and perhaps tweaking our policies accordingly. Whereas Canada started to vaccinate, but then there's been supply issues that have emerged. So we kind of don't really get the benefit of having waited to collect that extra data. But by the same token, we haven't kept up with certainly the US and the UK, which have led the world, but even you know, many other European countries as well that are far ahead of us in terms of getting their populations vaccinated. And really, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's, it's a long tunnel, but it looks like it's a little bit longer for Canadians than a lot of other countries that are kind of going through the same thing. Could you point to any countries that have done well that potentially, as you said, rely on having other countries produce the vaccines? Could you point to any countries that may have done really well in the procurement area of that? This isn't something I've delved too, too far into. I think within the EU, because of the free trade arrangement between those countries, that's an area where they can't restrict as much uh, vaccines going from one country to another because of the trade agreements that they have. The UK, now being outside of the EU, has done really, really well, but because they basically took it upon themselves to produce their own vaccine. And, and certainly the, you know, the Oxford Zeneca vaccine, which is their homegrown vaccine, is one that they've invested heavily in and they're certainly making widely available to their citizens. And again, you know, the rates of vaccination in the UK of many people getting a vaccine is the highest in the world. So they're doing really, really well about getting that vaccine rolled out to as many people as they can. So, you know, I think that one of the things that's kind of been interesting in all of this, and even we saw this sort of early on in the pandemic, when there was certainly debates about protective equipment and would be traded or would be exported. And, and certainly, you know, countries basically locking in their protective equipment. And I'm not entirely surprising that similar sorts of things have happened with the vaccines. There's been a little bit of vaccine diplomacy has been going on here and, and countries are holding on to their stocks of vaccine. And it's not flowing as freely around the world as it probably could and should. For the countries where the disease has been well managed, that's afforded a little bit of a luxury. We can wait for those vaccines to roll out. So Canada sort of being kind of middle of the pack in terms of the impact of the disease. We want the vaccine and we want to get it rolled out as, as quickly as we can. It is an area where we probably haven't done as well as we could have. I do think that was probably a little bit predictable. We might have predicted some difficulties in procurement coming along. So it's a little bit disappointing that this hasn't happened a bit more quickly and with a little bit more sense that there's a plan here. Moving forward, now that we're in the midst of waiting for vaccines and also attempting to continue to manage and contain COVID, do you have any recommendations for Canada moving forward? Well, I do think now, I mean, vaccines are clearly the way out. So I think getting access to, to any vaccine, and I think that's, you know, the, certainly the evidence that, or the you know, the message that's coming out from public health is the best vaccine is the one that's being offered to you. So, you know, get a shot once that vaccine becomes available and, and do so quickly. I think that the sooner the population is vaccinated to the point where we can declare that we've got herd immunity and, and particularly our most vulnerable citizens are protected, the elderly, the frontline healthcare workers, the other people who work in essential services and people who are at high exposure risks. It, again, that will allow a return to normalcy. 
Um, and that allow the economy to get back on track. And really, the only way we're going to get out of the deficit or the debt problem that we face in the future is through economic growth. So we really do need a, an economic growth strategy that's going to allow for our economies to grow to grow quickly and, and to kind of grapple with the ongoing expenditures. I do think a better vaccination and a rapid vaccination policy is crucial. Uh, the other thing I would point to is targeted lockdowns where they need to be. So again, I recognize this is difficult to do in a, in a very joined up, uh, integrated economy, but the extent to which we can shut down communities or geographic pockets where the disease emerges and try to keep it contained geographically to allow as much of the economy and as much of regular life to carry on while other people do grapple with this. And, and I think we recognize that this is you know, potentially going to be with us for at least the rest of 2021 and perhaps longer than that, hopefully not. Having the, a bit more nuanced response is always going to be more effective. This was a really fascinating discussion, and the COVID Misery Index is a great tool, and I think one that will be of immense value. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Rick. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed the discussion. 